0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join our lead pastor, Mike Wiggins, for the message, The Trinity and Our Salvation. All right, so around AD 64-65, the infamous Caesar Nero turned against the Christian community. If you remember from last week, he blamed the Christians for starting the great fire in Rome. And that led to an intense persecution against the church that lasted for a long time. If you remember off and on, get this, for 250 years. <laughs> off and on for 250 years, the government came after the church. And so the people that Peter was writing to were suffering, many of them, like they have never, never suffered before and they really needed some encouragement. And so what did the Holy Spirit do? By the way, the Holy Spirit, who's called the Comforter, what did he do? He inspired a famous apostle to write them a letter in order to encourage them, to lift up their spirits, to help them persevere. And of course, that man's name was Peter. According to 1 Peter 5, verse 12, Peter didn't actually write it. He dictated the letter to a man named Silas, who, if you remember from the book of Acts, was a partner with the apostle Paul on the missionary journey. And not only that, in chapter five, verse 13, Peter dictated this letter to Silas from Babylon, which we believe is a code word for the city of Rome. And so 15, or I'm sorry, 35 years, 35 years before Peter dictated this letter, you remember he met the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time in his life. And if you remember, Andrew, his brother, took him to the Lord. Hey, Peter, we found the Messiah. Or Simon, I should say. We found the Messiah. And Jesus looks at Simon and he changes his name. He says, you are Simon, you shall be Peter. And so what does Peter mean? If you remember this, it literally means the rock. And so even though it took a long time, eventually his changed name matched his changed Life and we saw last week that Peter had this transformation in his life in his earlier years. Simon, what was Simon? He was arrogant. This guy was arrogant, he was prideful, he was impulsive, he was unreliable, he was fearful. But by the time he dictates this letter, 8064 to 8065, we find out that Peter, he's humble, he's reliable, he's patient, and he's brave. This guy's like a rock. <laughs> Why? Because Peter was so good? No because God is a God of grace, and he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And see, that's what a relationship with the risen Christ, along with the continual filling of the Holy Spirit, did for Peter. And ladies and gentlemen, nothing's changed. And so if you'll enter into a relationship, not a religion, not a head knowledge, but if you'll enter into a relationship with the risen Christ by faith, and allow yourself to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, you can experience that transformation as well, and so can I, and that was last week. All right, so this week, we're getting into our verse-by-verse study, and guess how many verses we're gonna get through today? Two. (laughs) Two. But be encouraged, because next week, I hope to get through verses three all the way to 12, okay? So a lot of ground we're gonna cover next week, but man, I tell you, these two verses, they're so deep and we can't just get fast, you know go fast through it, all right? And so right now, if you're looking at chapter one, verse one, can you say amen? amen. Okay, so Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me stop right there. This is not in the notes, but I feel compelled this weekend to say this. Do you guys remember um, on the day of Pentecost when the church was born? You guys remember how many people got saved that day? 3,000 people, right? So it was already 120 disciples of Jesus added to 3,000. Now you got 3,120 followers of Jesus. The church is born. Do you guys remember what they did? Do you guys remember Acts 2:42? Do you remember one of the hallmark verses of our church? If you're new to Calvary, please listen up because I'm gonna tell you what our church is, or part of what our church is about. Acts 2.42, what did this new church do? It says, and I quote, they were devoted. Can you guys say the word devoted? Devoted Devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. What is the church supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Now, with that in mind, look again at verse one. Peter And, what's the next word? Apostle. Apostle Apostle of Jesus Christ. And what does he do for the next five chapters? This apostle teaches us. So what are we supposed to be doing in church? Learning how we can be healthy and wealthy and more prosperous? Another motivational speech to make you feel good? No! We're supposed to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, doing what we're doing right now. You say, you say, Pastor, you say that almost every single week. I know. <laughs> because the church is like going off into Never Never Land. Gotta get back to the Bible. So all that was free. All right, so Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, and I want you to shout out the word exiles. exiles. Thank you elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, so let's stop right there. As we saw last week, the recipients of this letter were part of the Christian dispersion, which means that they were scattered around the Roman Empire to places like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all within modern day Turkey. Peter called them exiles. All right, so in the original language, what does that Greek word mean? It literally means, thank you Blue Letter Bible, one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the side of the natives. If you have the King James, it's translated strangers. If you have the New King James, it's translated pilgrims. I really like that. If you have the NASB, it's translated Aliens, okay, all of those are great translations of the Greek word. The idea is that even though these believers lived in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, those places were not their permanent home. All right, so what was their permanent home? Heaven. And so check out what Paul wrote to the church of Philippi. Our citizenship is where? You tell me. In heaven. This world's not our home. It's in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what was true 2,000 years ago is still true today. We may live in Port St. Lucie. We may live in Fort Pierce. We may live in Jensen Beach or in Stewart or over on Hudson Island. But those places are not our permanent home. Why? Because we are citizens of heaven. All this reminds me of the old gospel song that. I used to sing back in Bible college, I couldn't believe this as I thought about it, like 34 years ago. It's called This World Is Not My Home. Does anybody remember that old gospel song? So we would have devotions every night on our floor in Bible college and we would sing these medleys and so I'm not gonna sing it because you'll leave, so let me just quote it. This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. Here it is, listen to this. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Do any of you feel at home in this world? I mean, you know why you don't feel at home in this world? By the way, if you feel at home in this world, there's a problem. But the reason you don't feel at home in this world is why? Because you're citizens of heaven. So if you're taking notes, that leads us to our next point. Lots of application in the beginning of the message today. And that is, since this world is not our home, we shouldn't get too comfortable here. We're strangers. We're aliens. We're pilgrims. So what does that mean? That means that we think of the world like a bridge. No one spends a lot of time on a bridge. They just pass over it. So I want you to think about the Roosevelt Bridge uh, down in Stewart. All right, and so can you imagine if I told a construction crew, hey, load up that flatbed truck with lots of building materials and follow me. And we drive up to the very top of the Roosevelt Bridge. And I say, all right, guys, unload it, all those building materials. Let's build a big, beautiful home for my wife and I so we can be comfortable on this bridge for the rest of our lives. Let's go. What would happen? The police would come and take me away before the truck's unloaded. Why? Because ladies and gentlemen, everybody knows you don't build on a bridge. You just pass over it. So when it comes to our time in the world, it's like we're passing over a bridge. You say, where are you going? Heaven. (laughs) And it's gonna be amazing. Have you heard about it? Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And we're gonna live there forever and ever and ever and ever, and it's gonna make this world seem like nothing. Can't wait for heaven. Since this world is not our home, we shouldn't get too comfortable here. But number two, This could be convicting, by the way. We shouldn't get too attached here. Ladies and gentlemen, because our citizenship is in heaven, we shouldn't get too attached to worldly things. So many people, right, they're so attached to their house or their yard or their car or their clothes or their money, so attached to it. Or other people, they're so passionate about their sports team or their hobby or, get this, their political party. But here's here's what you need to know, that true believers are citizens of heaven. And so true believers strive to keep those things in check. True believers check their hearts and they make sure that those things are in their proper place on the priority list, okay? And so of course we have houses, of course we have cars, and we have clothes, and we have money, and we may even root for a sports team. I'm from Tampa. Tonight, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are in the playoffs. That hasn't happened, I think, since like 1,000 years ago. So yeah, I'm a little bit excited, all right? And so, but I gotta keep those things in check, right? And so yeah, we have houses and cars and clothes and money, and yeah, we root for sports teams and enjoy hobbies, and we even support political parties, but none of those things are allowed to become too prominent in our heart. None of those things, if you're with me, say amen here. None of those things become central in our hearts. We're pilgrims, what does that mean? That means that Christ alone is central in our heart, and we live our lives by his teachings. That's what that means. That's what it means to be a Christian. Don't be conformed to this world. Stop being a puppet, just following whatever this person says in the media or this person says in their book. Don't allow yourself to do that. This is our book. This is what we get passionate about. This is, what we are, this is what's central in our lives. And so, everything else is secondary. Christ, Christ is number one. I can't wait to see him, by the way. It's gonna be awesome. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, please shout out the word now, elect. elect. Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now the inference there, and some of your translations bear this out, is elect, Chosen according to the foreknowledge of, please underline, God the Father. In sanctification, please underline the Spirit. For obedience to, please underline, Jesus Christ. And for sprinkling, I love that, sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now I had you underline God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ to show you that the three persons of the Trinity were all vitally involved in your salvation. As I said on Christmas Eve, we believe in one God, eternally existent in three persons. Now if you're with me now, say amen. Amen. We don't believe in one person existing in three modes. That's a heresy, it's called modalism, and sadly some evangelicals are modalists. It's not right, it's unorthodox, it's not biblical. We believe in one God eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You say, how can God be three in one? The same way a triangle is three in one, as I showed you on Christmas Eve. So here we see one triangle, which has three sides. If you remove any of the sides of the triangle, you no longer have a triangle. Likewise, God is one in his divine essence, one God. But within his divine essence, there are three persons. If you remove any of the three persons of the Godhead, you no longer have the true God you have something else who is not God. Ladies and gentlemen, we should be so thankful for the progressive revelation of the New Testament because here's what we know. The true God is the triune God. That's the truth. And so it's important to understand that each member of the Trinity shows the qualities of personhood. You look up passages in the Bible about the Father and what do you see? You look up passages about the Son, what do you see? Look up passages about the Holy Spirit, what do you see? What you see is that each member of the Trinity thinks. Each member speaks. Each member acts. Impersonal force fields don't think, speak, or act. A person does. And so what you gotta understand is there's one God, there's three Persons, and regarding their personhood, as it says in the graphic, it's very clear that the Father is not the Son. And so let's not be sloppy in our prayers and say thank you, Father, for dying on the cross for our sins. The Father didn't die on the cross for our sins. Who did? Jesus. Two distinct persons. And the Son is not the Spirit. Okay, so on the day that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, and he came up out of that water, Jesus didn't didn't come down, okay? Who came down? The Holy Spirit came down. And then not only that, but the Spirit's not the Father. And so on that day of his baptism, the Spirit didn't say from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. No, the Spirit didn't say that, that was the Father. The Spirit came down as a dove. Is this making sense to you guys? One God, three distinct persons. And make no mistake, as the graphic says in the middle, each person is God. Concerning the deity of the Father, here's what um, it says in Romans. Grace to you and peace from who, our Father? God, our Father. The transcendent, infinite, omniscient God. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Concerning the deity of the Son, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, in the beginning, the beginning of the space-time material universe, creation, in the beginning was already existing the Word, Lagos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was who? God. Concerning the deity of the Holy Spirit, Peter said it, Ananias. And by the way, I'm so glad that, that God... Uh, <laughs> doesn't treat anybody in this church uh, the way that he treated Ananias and Sapphira, Uh, but Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to man, but to who? God, the Holy Spirit, very clear in that verse, is God. And so ladies and gentlemen, the Old Testament implies the plurality within the Godhead You can see from these verses, the New Testament fully reveals the Trinity. And here's what I love. On on the weekend services, I got time to do what I didn't have time to do on Christmas Eve. And so regarding the Old Testament, I wanna show you the plurality within the Godhead in Genesis 1-1. Look at this, the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God, Elohim in the Hebrew, created the heavens and the earth. And so the very first time we see God's name in the Bible, grammatically, it appears in the masculine plural form. It's a masculine plural noun. So even in the Old Testament, it allows for plurality within the unity. We see the plurality within the Godhead implied in the the famous Shema. If you're new to the Bible, Shema simply means here. Okay, so here is the statement of faith that you see from the Jews in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, God, and you shall, because you're a pilgrim, this world's not your home, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. And somebody says, see that, Pastor? The Shema, it denies the Trinity, it's right there. It says that God is one, no. I beg to differ, the Shema actually affirms the the Trinity because the Hebrew word for one that indicates absolute unity is a different word. It's yakid. That's not the word that Moses used when he wrote this verse. He used the word, as you can see there, ekad, which is a compound unity which allows for plurality within the unity. By the way, that word ekad in the Hebrew is the same word, used in Genesis two twenty four, speaking about marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one echad, compound unity, one flesh. We see the plurality of God screaming at us in Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let, say the next word, please. Us. us. Make man in our image, after our likeness. Please notice the pronouns, us and our. Somebody says, well, God was just talking to the angels. Hey, angels, let's make man in our image. There's two problems with that. Number one, angels don't create man. (laughs) Number two, there's nothing in the Bible that says angels are created in the image of God. And so that can't be true. So what's going on in Genesis 126? Well, if you've read the New Testament, then you know that the triune God is speaking within himself here, even in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament implies the Trinity. The New Testament absolutely fully reveals it. I want you to check out Paul's benediction to the church at Corinth. Doesn't get any clearer than this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the inference there is the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I am so grateful, ladies and gentlemen, for the New Testament. I am so grateful that there's certain doctrines in the Bible that progressively are revealed, and the Trinity is one of those doctrines. It's also important, we're gonna go a little deeper, to understand that each member of the Trinity is co-eternal and co-equal. You say, Pastor, what in the world are you doing this morning? I'm teaching Christians about their God. It's super important to know the one we worship at a deeper level. And so, each member of the Trinity is co-eternal. What does that mean? Well, co-eternal simply means that no person of the Trinity ever came into existence. Each person of the Trinity has always existed. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if a member of the Trinity came into existence, that means that that member had a beginning. And anything that has a beginning is temporal, not eternal. God is not like us. God is not temporal. God is eternal. And so God has forever existed in three persons. You remember this from Christmas Eve. The Son, eternally begotten of the Father. It's the doctrine of eternal generation. And so you remember this? Just like there's a sun, there are sun rays. Right, Radiating from the sun. There's never been a time when there was a sun and no sun rays. In the same way, there's never been a time when there's been a Father and not the Son. The Son, eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. They are co-eternal, And, this is important, they are co-equal. What does that mean? That That means that the members of the Trinity are absolutely equal in terms of their divine essence, in terms of their attributes, and in terms of their glory. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Therefore, each one should be worshiped. We should worship the Father, we should worship the Son, and yes, we should worship the Holy Spirit of God. We've had people walk out of the church because we worship the Holy Spirit. Guess what? He's God. (laughs) You need to worship God, right? And so they are absolutely co-equal. Now, even though the co-equality is true concerning the divine essence of the Godhead, We must admit that there is not co-equality when it comes to the roles of each member of the Trinity. Each member carries, when they carry out their roles, we see a subordination within the Godhead. For example, in the Gospels, we see Jesus the Son, and what is he doing? He's submitting to the Father. He's an example to us. If you haven't never submitted your life to God, you should do that. The son is submitting to the Father. But guess what? There's gonna be people, maybe this Saturday, they're gonna knock on your door. And if you talk to them, they're gonna show you, from the Bible, these places in the Gospels where Jesus, the son, submitted to the Father. And they're gonna say, see? The son is a lesser deity than the Father. Ladies and gentlemen, that's from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. It's not true. Don't buy into it. You say, well what do I say to these people? Well first of all, give them the correct translation of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus was and is God. Not a God as they mistranslated the Greek. A God little g, no. Not Michael the Archangel. No, he's God. And then tell him something like this. We'll, take, we'll put the ne- next uh, point up on the screen. So, they're at your door, they're knocking, and say something like, the son's subordination to the father is not ontological, having to do with being, having to do with nature, but rather functional. Having to do with activity. And the classic passage, the rich passage that bears out that truth is found in Philippians chapter two. Some of you guys know where I'm going with this. But right now, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, can you say amen? Amen. Listen to the word of God. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind, right? So listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God. The word in the Greek is morphe. That means that he uh, has the exact same nature and essence as God the Father. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. It's called the kenosis. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. This is why we love Jesus. And being born in the likeness of men. What an amazing word from God about Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He emptied himself. Now listen, you can't mess this up. You can't get this wrong. What, what did Jesus empty himself of? Some people actually say, well, he emptied himself of his divinity. No! Jesus never stopped being God. Some people say, well, he, he emptied himself of his divine attributes. No! Anybody who stands up in a boat in a storm and says, quiet, be still, and there's complete peace, that guy's God. (laughs) He did not deny himself of his divinity. He did not um, uh, empty himself of his divine attributes. What did he empty himself of? His divine privileges. He was on the throne of heaven. God. God. And the angels are covering their faces, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that God came, and what did he do? He clothed himself in human flesh. And then what did he do? He said, I'm gonna be a nothing. And then what did he do? I'm gonna be a servant. And then what did he do? He marched to a cross and willingly laid down his life and paid for your sins so that you could live forever with him. That's why we love Jesus. That's the truth of the scriptures. That's what he did for you and that's what he did for me. So concerning his being, his being, Christ was and is God. Concerning his activity, he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant and he wants us to follow that example. Now it's fascinating to me to realize that each person of the Trinity played a vital role In your salvation, if you're here today and you're saved, each person played a vital role. And so I want you to look again at verses one and two. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles, elect, elect, exiles of the dispersion, and all those places in modern day Turkey, verse two. Elect, according to the for knowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right. So, regarding the Trinity and our salvation, you need to know the Father thought it, the Son bought it, and the Spirit wrought it. Thank you. John Phillips for giving us rhyming words so we can remember these eternal truths. The Father thought it, the Son bought it, and the Spirit wrought it. Said another way, the Father is the originator of our salvation, the Son is the executor, he carries out the plan of our salvation, and the Holy Spirit is the activator of our salvation, all right? And so regarding the Trinity and our salvation, we're gonna go even deeper. You say, Pastor, what are you doing? I want to help all of us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. We do it in school. We tell kids, hey, I hope you make it to the next grade. Hey, go to the next grade. Hey, go to the next grade. Why do we not do that in the church? And so, remember, we have We're stretched, we have deeper thoughts of God, it makes us wanna worship the Lord even more. And so concerning the Trinity and our salvation, the Father thought it, we are elect, we are chosen, whether you like the doctrine or not, it's true. (laughs) We're elect according, not based on, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God's foreknowledge has to do with his omniscience. He always has and always will know Everything. And so, get this, Ephesians chapter one. Before he created the world, he chose you, if you know Christ today. Before he created the world, before the creation of the, of the space-time material universe, he knew you in an intimate way, and he chose you, listen, according to his foreknowledge. But right now, if you're with me, say Amen. amen. But in doing that, he never once violated your free will. Let me say that again. Before he created the world, God chose you, if you know him. By the way, you say, what if I'm not one of the chosen? Believe in Jesus, you'll be one of the chosen. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you in accordance with his foreknowledge, but never once did he violate your free will. If you wanna go deeper in this doctrine of election, I recommend this book by Dr. Norman Geisler, it's called Chosen But Free. Okay, so Dr. Geisler went home to be with the Lord on July 1st, 2019. And so right now, can you imagine he is there beholding the face of God. And so while he was on earth, this guy was a champion. This guy, I tell you what, he was used so much by the Lord, especially in the area of apologetics. And by the way, he is Uh, the president or was the president of the seminary that I am hopefully gonna be done with this year. And so in an interview, he explained God's foreknowledge of our free choices. I'm just gonna read his words. He says, and I quote, my wife tapes my favorite football team when I'm on the road. I come home and the game is taped. Every time I play the video, it comes out the same. The score is the same, every play is the same. Everything from that standpoint is determined, it's fixed. But every play was freely chosen. The players chose to be on that team, they chose that play, they chose to go around and tackle. It's determined, but it's free. You say, well, that's looking backwards. But God can look forward with the same ability that we look backward. He can see our free choices in the future. They are determined from the standpoint of his knowledge but they're free from the standpoint of our choice. And so Dr. Geisler was what you would call a moderate Calvinist, just like Dr. Charles Ryrie, whose a a study Bible I'm always encouraging you guys to read. And this is what he said concerning election and foreknowledge. He said, we should speak of God as knowingly determining and determinately knowing from all eternity Everything that happens, including our free acts. And so you answer me, is God absolutely sovereign, yes or no? Is, and, and are we responsible, yes or no? Yes. How many of you guys remember the, the, the movie Radio? And he's sitting in the diner, and I think she said, the waitress said, you want chocolate cake or apple pie? And he said, I want both. God is sovereign, we are responsible. Absolutely, what I love about Dr. Geisler, because this is a very controversial subject, but what he does, what he did, is that he looks at the nature of God, the attributes of God, when talking about this subject. And so hang with me here as we talk about our awesome God. You need to know that God is absolutely transcendent. What does that mean? That means that God, our God, is above the space-time material universe. And not only that, as I already said, God is omniscient. He always has and always will know absolutely everything. And not only that, our God is simple, not simple-minded. The word simple means he's absolutely one and his attributes are absolutely one with his nature. And not only that, you gotta hear this one, he's infinite. What does that mean? That means that God, unlike us, is not bound to time and space. He's not bound to time. That means that he does not think chronologically. What does that mean? Because he exists in the eternal now, there is no chronological order to his foreknowledge and his predetermination to elect us. His foreknowledge and his predetermination are co-extensive. They correspond Perfectly. What does that mean? That means that God does not look through the corridors of time and say, Oh, look, it's 1984, and there's Mike Wiggins. And someone, I didn't know this was gonna happen. Someone gave him a gospel track. Oh man, I really hope he says the little prayer. Oh, come on, Mike, I'm rooting for you. And Mike says the prayer. Woo! I'm glad he got saved. That's not God. Are we kidding ourselves or what? God's not dependent on our choice. God is not contingent, he's necessary. God is not finite, he's infinite. Okay, so we gotta understand that. But we also have to admit that his election is not exercised independent of our free Choice, it's not like he just arbitrarily chooses some to be saved and arbitrarily chooses some to be damned and those people have no say in it, no. Both positions are an extreme. What does the Bible teach? What does good sense teach? We're elect in accordance, not based on, in accordance with the foreknowledge of God the Father. You say, Pastor, I've never been more confused about this doctrine. (laughs) I encourage you to get the book. Hey, in school, we keep trying to learn more. We keep trying to go to additional grades. Why is it any different in the church? Regarding the Trinity and our salvation, the Father thought it, but the Son bought it. This is the part we all know really, really well. And so whereas the Father is the originator of our salvation, the Son is the executor of our salvation. He's the one who carries out the Father's plan. He's the one who comes on a rescue mission to seek and to save those who are lost. And by the way, how many people are lost? You tell me. All, thank you. Thank you for having a biblical worldview. Thank you for not being conformed to the world. Thank you for not letting the culture teach you that we're humanists and that we have this inherent goodness inside of us. It's not true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. Now how many of you guys understand you're not just bodies? You have an immortal soul, and your immortal soul, whether you believe anything that I'm saying uh, this afternoon or not, your immortal soul, mark it down, will live forever in one of two places, heaven or hell. And there is no purgatory. That was made up later in church history. The Bible teaches heaven or hell. And so you gotta come to grips with that. You say, I don't like it. It's still true anyway. So you better submit to it. And so there's a heaven and there's a hell and the wages of sin is death, eternal death. That's eternal and you're alive. Eternal separation from a God who loves you. The wages of sin is death. But how many of you guys are glad for John three sixteen? You cannot wear this verse out. So when I watch football games and before COVID, I see John three sixteen when they're kicking field goals, I say thank you God for that person right there. For God so loved the world that he gave, he's a giver, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What does it mean that God gave his son? Paul told us. He said God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, God hated us and said, go to hell? Is that what happened? No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't let anyone ever tell you that God is evil. That's the voice of the enemy. God is good. And look what his son did for you. Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. He takes the hand of the Father. He takes your hand if you're willing. And he joins the hands together. He's a great Reconciler, and then John tells us this, he is the propitiation. Listen, that's, don't be afraid of that word, it's just a word that means satisfaction. Christ is the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the elect. Is that what it says? No, it says that don't make the Bible say stuff it doesn't say to fit into your theology. It's not right. He is the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so since the Son right, gave his life on the cross for you and for me, what did he do? He satisfied the wrath of God against our sin. (laughs) and then he died, and then three days later, he gets up and he marches out of that grave, victorious over sin, death, and damnation. And so if the Father's wrath has been satisfied, if he's no longer wrathful to you and to me concerning our sin, well, what's left for us as believers? Nothing but salvation, nothing but blessings, and nothing but eternal life. That's what I call a good God. He's a great God, he's an awesome God. In John 6, 29, they said to Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus looked at them and said, this is the work of God. Believe on the one he sent, believe. Stop resisting, stop putting the wall up, stop fighting God, he loves you. Believe on the one he has sent, not intellectual assent. You need to embrace Christ. You need to embrace what he did on the cross as a payment for the penalty of your sins. You need to receive him as the Savior and Lord of your life. Regarding the Trinity and our salvation, the Father thought it, the Son bought it, and finally, the Spirit wrought it. And so the Father, he's the originator of our salvation. The Son, he's the executor, he carries out the plan. And then the spirit, what does he do? He's the activator. He activates our salvation. How does he do that? I'll get into this next week, but let me just quickly wrap this up. How does the spirit activate our salvation? Here's what he does. He convicts us of our sins. He regenerates us, makes us new. He sanctifies us. He convinces, convicts us of our sin. Right, all of a sudden, we become aware of our sins. And all of a sudden, we see that the wages of sin is death. And all of a sudden, we know I'm a sinner and I need a savior. What is he doing? He's wooing and he's drawing you. How many of you you guys are glad for the Holy Spirit, right? How many are you glad that he went on a search for you? I've told you this a thousand times, but to say, that someone gets up and I'm gonna go on a search for God today is like saying that the mouse goes searching for the cat. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. It never happens. Mice don't search for cats. Cats search for mice. Christ, the Holy Spirit specifically, searched for you. He convinced you, he convicts you. I need a savior. And then when you hear the good news of the gospel of grace, you can't work your way to heaven. Jesus did all the work. You need to receive him and what he did for you. Then what happens? The Holy Spirit regenerates you. He makes you new. Listen, he doesn't regenerate you, zap you, so you can believe. Stop making the Bible say things it doesn't say to fit into your theology. It's not true. He regenerates you when you believe. That's what the Bible teaches. And then what does he do? then he sanctifies you. And I'm gonna end with this. Sanctification, what is, it starts with justification. What does that mean? That means that when we turn to Christ in faith, God declares that person is righteous. And you can accurately say, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. It's called initial sanctification. It's called justification. And then there's this lifelong process of sanctification. It's a lifelong process of being set apart by the Holy Spirit, being made holy by the Holy Spirit of God. And so in this whole process, what's happening? As we yield to the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives us victory over our sins. And you can accurately say, I am being saved from the power of sin." And then it's all gonna end up my favorite term, glorification, that one day when we see Christ, we're gonna be like him. And if you're a believer, you're gonna receive a brand new body that's immortal and indestructible. No more sin, no more death, no more pain. You're gonna live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Why? Because God's gonna glorify you. He's gonna give you a new body and you'll be able to accurately say, I will be and I am saved forever from the presence of sin. That's our triune God. And I think we should probably put our hands together and we should thank him for this great salvation that he offers to us. It's a great salvation. Have you received it? Have you received the salvation? Listen, eternity is a long time and nobody is guaranteed of tomorrow. There's so many people that we all know of. They wake up, they have no idea that's the last day they're gonna be on earth and they're whisked off into eternity and sadly, some are not prepared. Are you prepared? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? And so if you haven't, after my closing prayer, I wanna ask you to do something bold, I wanna ask you to come forward and receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. Make today the day of your salvation. It is, it is a choice. Choose Christ, don't put it off.